Welcome to Season 2 of Sexistential You, the School of Sexistentialism. Here we talk about sex, sociology, and the path to a sex-positive, pleasure-filled life. Sexistential You is brought to you by sex educators and therapists Janice Luna and Rachel Klachewski, and is guided by the Circles of Sexuality, a model created by Dennis Daly. In Season 2, we'll be talking about sexualization and power, which according to the Circles involves, quote, how we use our sexuality and may include manipulating and controlling others, end quote. Some of this season's episodes might be a little intense, so we ask that you check in with yourselves while listening and do what you need to in order to take care of yourselves around this topic. Hey everyone, welcome to season two, episode three of Sexistential You. Uh, Like we said in the intro, this season is about sexualization and power. Uh, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the idea of withholding sex um, because it's an extension of the power dynamics that exist in flirtation and seduction and positions women, generally speaking, as the gatekeepers of sex and that men have the role to take it. So, Rachel, has this shown up clinically in any of your work? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that withholding sex is often something that we see women doing. Mm-hmm. But the case that pops into my head was an actual role reversal um, where it was a married couple. They've been married for a long time. And the wife was particularly libidinous. And she attached so much of her functioning to her to her sexuality mm-hmm. and her need for, for sexual pleasure and physical pleasure in general. And her husband, who's particularly manipulative and abusive, which is kind of why I like stopped working with them as a couple because Mm -hmm. I did not want to, I did not want to make it seem like there was something she can do to stop him from being abusive. He Mm -hmm. needed to stop being abusive. Mm -hmm. Um, He would withhold sex from her Mm -hmm. and then watch her just kind of like turn into this empty shell, right? Because she felt she felt a lack of sense of self mm-hmm. when she wasn't engaging sexually. Mm-hmm. And he, and the thing that was really difficult about this was that he was having affairs mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, get, you know, get his, you know, his sexuality taken care of, his sexual needs taken care of, and then would withhold it from her. Mm-hmm. Um, did she know he was having affairs? Yeah, she did. And, you know, she didn't want to engage in affairs because she was like, then what? Yeah. Then he's just going to point out that I was the wrong one. And he was holding on to a lot of misogyny. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, we eventually led to a divorce, mm-hmm. you know, and it was hard for her to acknowledge it. Like she knew, but therapy was the thing that she really needed. Um, but I do find it interesting. It was clear that this was kind of a role reversal. We did talk about this in therapy, not to say that men don't withhold sex, Mm -hmm. right? We know that men can do all of this stuff as well, but I do find it interesting that it's usually women withholding sex. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering like, you know, how are women so capable of withholding sex? Mm -hmm. Because it's not that they don't want it, Mm -hmm. right? It's not that sex doesn't feel good for women. Mm -hmm. And maybe it doesn't in a lot of cases, but you know, I don't want to believe that it's, so often Mm -hmm. that women dislike sex that they can withhold it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was wondering, you know, what are your theories as to why women would be the, 
you know, the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. you know, of sex? Why, like, why do you think that happens? Um, it's actually really interesting to me because when, when I saw that this was going to be the topic of one of our episodes, it was actually a little bit confusing to me because I don't think I have much experience with couples where one partner is withholding sex. You know, I've, I've mostly, well, I, in, in my couples work, I've usually worked with same gender couples and the issue is that they really want to be having sex. And it's like, you know, how do we make desire align? How do we make sure that we're both in the mood? to have sex at the same time. Um, And I haven't really, like, I know sort of like culturally women are the gatekeepers of sex. It's stuff that we've been taught, you know, since we were a kid, we're like, you have to protect your virginity. And then if you give it away, then, you know, you have that like horrible, like bubble gum metaphor or like gum wrapper metaphor, whichever. Yeah. The one like your chewed up gum. Yeah. And then there's the one, you know, the very famous one from Jane the Virgin where the flower gets crushed and she holds on to that metaphor until she's married and you know how she struggles with it for years. It's, it's a really cute show. I I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, But it's definitely, I think attached to some kind of like purity myth in terms of, you know, who like, sort of assuming that like women in heterosexual partnerships never want sex and they have to withhold it because it's something that their male partners always want. So as a way of like establishing control, it's like maybe a woman's only sort of method of establishing control within the relationship. Okay. Um, But it's interesting because like for me in my work, in my personal life, you know, like, I don't know, it's just like never been a tactic that I've used. Um, because it just seems like cutting off your nose to spite your face to me. But um, I've also just, you know, in my clinical work, mostly just have seen people when whenever there's a struggle in terms of sex and how much sex people are having, at least in my experience, both partners are are showing up and like, want, it's not like a conscious thing, you right. know, like it's it's like we are really struggling to have sex. We are really struggling to be on the same page. And I haven't at least seen it in this sort of like conscious way of being like, I'm going to deny my partner this to get what I want. Interesting. Like good for my couples. Yes. That's great. (laughs) No, this makes me think of the, I think it was the second episode of the first season where we talk about the Victorian era and Mm -hmm. we talk about that book that was like, you know, you know, for women in marriage where, they told women that they needed to run away from their husband's overtures, mm-hmm. you know, like sexual overtures when they weren't ovulating. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that that definitely bleeds into our concept of female sexuality, mm-hmm. but also makes me think of this really horrible theory that was created, I think in the eighties or the nineties called lesbian bed death, mm-hmm. you know, where they decided that everybody functions within the same gender roles. Mm-hmm. And because they do, men would be sexual initiators mm-hmm. And so lesbians will eventually stop having sex because they're both women. Mm -hmm. And so there is no initiator there. That was the theory. And of course, I'm pretty sure it was created by a dude, which I think is hilarious um, and was never really substantiated either. But it definitely affected the culture. Yeah. Um, and And I have seen that early on in my career, not as much now. So back in like, I went to social work school from 2009 to 2011. And I had my um, second year internship at the Brooklyn Community Pride Center. And I remember meeting a lesbian couple that, you know, confided in me about this. 
um, where they were saying, like, they think that they have lesbian bed death. Mm -hmm. And then I asked them, I was like, do you think you have lesbian bed death because it's a theory that exists or because this is literally what's happening in your relationship? Mm -hmm. And how much of what's happening in your relationship is influenced by what you think Mm -hmm. is going on around you? Mm -hmm. And it was a really meta conversation. and, And I was not trained at all and this was not a clinical experience but I you know I did have this conversation and it did change how they interacted with each other when they Mm -hmm. started asking themselves the questions Mm -hmm. and realized that they don't have to give in to those Mm -hmm. norms but not only that but like for heterosexual couples like just if you've been together long enough like sex needs to become an intentional practice like it's really easy to get used to someone and it's really easy to sort of like scoot them into this box of like friend and partner and like you know person who does the chores and like you know it's really easy to put people in these kind of like unsexy boxes you know like I have heterosexual couples or like heterosexual clients um who aren't having sex who haven't had sex in months who like want to be having more sex and it's just like also you know like life is stressful and we're all working all the time and you know anxiety is such a mood killer you know, for everyone, regardless yeah. of what, what type of relationship you're in, what type of, what your like sexuality is, you know? And I think the idea of lesbian bed death to me is just like, you know, it is positioned against the idea, I guess, that heterosexual couples are fucking all the time. But like, in my experience in working with people, like they're not, they're also, you know, I, I'll ask people like, how many times a week do you want to be having sex? And a lot of the time the answer is like, once a week would be nice. Right. They lower their like concept of what's a good amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, this also makes me think about, you know, people are like, we want spontaneous sex. I was like, (laughs) I don't want spontaneous anything. Right. I I make too many to-do lists to have spontaneous. I mean, yeah, that that's a big part of it. Right. That like, maybe we don't actually want spontaneous sex, but I also take the veil off and remind them that they probably never actually had spontaneous sex, even when they were dating. Right. Because when you're dating, you're preparing yourself for sex, right? Like you're, you know, you're showering a little bit more intentionally. You're dressed in certain lingerie or whatever it is, you know, like, you know, when sex is on the table, Mm -hmm. when you go out on a date Mm -hmm. and that you don't have that when you're living together, because when the prep is happening in front of your partner, it's Mm -hmm. a little weird, you know, it feels uncomfortable until you get there. Yeah. Right. And this also makes me think a lot about like, the threat that withholding sex, you know, is in a monogamous relationship in Mm -hmm. particular, because like if it's a non-monogamous relationship, right, we know that the the non-monogamous relationship where sex isn't happening and they want sex to be happening, Mm -hmm. that relationship is having a hard time, Mm -hmm. but you can still find sex, right? Like sex isn't the thing that's stressing you out. Mm But when you're in a monogamous relationship and somebody's intentionally withholding sex because they're mad or because they don't want, they're not getting what they want, right? Like in that manipulative way, not in the way like that we were describing earlier, like in the couple that I was talking about, what you're doing is putting your partner in like in harm's way. And people don't realize this, but without like without sex, there is no there's no physicality, right? We, because when you're withholding sex, you're not also cuddling with your partner. You're not making out with your partner. You're not massaging your partner. You're not doing anything physically sensual or intimate with them. And so withholding sex is withholding touch. Mm-hmm. And we need to be touched. We have skin hunger. Skin hunger is 
a very real desire to be touched, and we know that it's that it's necessary. We see this in people who, you know, who don't get touched often because they live alone or they don't have access to hugs and 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 intentional touch, and they have higher rates of depression and anxiety. And we've seen that study from Russia when there were all of these orphans in an orphanage, and they just couldn't take care of all the babies, and they were just like leave babies in a bunch of cradles that they would rock mechanically. And so many of those babies died because they weren't being held and touched. And we know that skin to skin contact is important. Mm -hmm. So when you're withholding sex, you are harming your partner. And this is where the power dynamic comes in because it is abusive behavior through neglect. Mm -hmm. And nobody really frames it that way. I haven't heard that framed that way in any in any study that I've ever read, and it's always really bothered me because I know that I would crumble, right? I would fall apart if I didn't have regular access to touch, mm-hmm. intentional touch. Yeah. I just, I feel like, I don't know, when when we wrote this as an episode topic, it was kind of weird for me because, like, I'm in this place now of what Adrian Marie Brown calls, like, strategic celibacy and... I don't know. I think when we talk about withholding sex, we have to be really careful because I, I sort of, I don't know. Like I, I know that we're talking about like being manipulative and like, you know, holding it over someone's head, essentially, you know, that I'm not going to have sex with you until you act in the way that I want you to act, you know, and that obviously is wrong. Um, But it just makes me wonder like how common is this, you know, and, and like you'd mentioned, like not wanting to have sex with someone or, or declining to have sex with someone because you're angry. And to me, I'm just like, but that's legit, you know? No, like, that's legit. I, that I w- if somebody's doing something that's hurting you and they are not ready to validate your pain mm-hmm. or hold themselves accountable, mm-hmm. then that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? If the person is not being kind to you, mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, that's a literal vagina but dryer also, for me. But it like, also makes me think of, like, heterosexual partnerships where the male partner just either because of socialization, because of entitlement, because of any number of things that are, you know, sometimes in- intentional, sometimes conscious, but also, like, just a part of, of sort of toxic masculinity. And I think, you know, wanting to engage with that and wanting to unpack that and unlearn that is a process. And I, I, I just don't like the way that this sort of falls out when it comes to heterosexual partnerships, where it's like, if your partner, if your male partner, if this is the the dynamic that we're talking about, can't or won't be an emotional support for you, won't engage with you in an emotional way, you know, to me, like that's where the where the lines get kind of blurred in, in terms of understanding withholding sex, right? Absolutely. Because like it shouldn't be a woman's job to educate her partner into like how to be an emotional being, you know, like we very often get put into those roles. And then, you know, to be the one who's like, let me supply access to my body as a way of smoothing over some type of conflict, like really doesn't sit right with that's me either. Also manipulative. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's playing with sex in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to recognize that when sex is done, you know, without without the informed consent, Mm -hmm. right, with a purpose Mm -hmm. that is not, you know, to be closer to somebody Mm -hmm. or because, you know, you want to each just get your rocks off, Mm -hmm. like whatever that is. When sex is done with an ulterior motive Mm -hmm. where 
all parties are mm-hmm. involved and understand that that ulterior motive is there, mm-hmm. then it's problematic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this makes me think of, like, two people, right? So there's um, Sex Stuff with Chris mm-hmm. on Instagram, who I highly recommend that you follow mm-hmm. because she's hilarious and also has great content. You know, posted a meme that said, if he can't open his mouth and ask you about your problems, then you don't need to open up your mouth to suck his dick. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that that's what we're talking about here. If he can't be emotionally available where that's part of the arrangement of your relationship, mm-hmm. then you need to ask yourself if that's what you want mm-hmm. in your relationship. Mm-hmm. And if that is what you want, then go ahead, suck mm-hmm. his dick, mm-hmm. you know. But if that's not what you want, if you want somebody to be an emotional support partner as well, and you have asked for that, mm-hmm. and you have spoken about that, and they're still withholding, mm-hmm. right, and that's another kind of withholding mm-hmm. power dynamic, mm-hmm. then don't, right? Because if your body's not going to respond sexually to somebody mm-hmm. due to, to the emotional abuses that they're throwing mm-hmm. your way, then don't do it. Yeah. Right. Listen to your body. And then I think of Emily Nagowski who wrote come as you are the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. Mm-hmm. She was a guest on a podcast called hot and bothered, which is a very cute podcast mm-hmm. about, you know, writing romance novels mm-hmm. and they really kind of, get at the whole like patriarchal lens that a lot of romance novels are written through and and they try to dismantle that they're really a very cool a very cool bunch over there and so she was a guest on their show and she explained that our entire history exists within our interactions when you're being reminded of something painful or irritating about your partner you're not likely to desire them Mm -hmm. that is not the same as withholding sex Mm -hmm. And she really clarifies that. She, yeah. she makes that very clear. It's yeah. not the same as withholding sex. And definitely listen to your body. Yeah. And also just makes me think of, like, what quality of sex are we talking about? Because to me, when I hear withholding sex, especially if I hear it within, like, heterosexual heterosexual dynamics, I'm sort of thinking, like, sex as a chore. Right? Like, sex as a thing that the woman provides because it is expected You know, and for me, like understanding it that way and just being like, like with this quote, you know, you don't need to open your mouth to suck his dick. Like, well, I really like sucking dick, first of all, you know, like it's not something that I'm going to withhold it if I enjoy it. So like what is going on in this partnership where one person feels like they need to withhold something that they would otherwise enjoy in order to get what they want? Like, I feel like that's that's the piece that's missing. Like if, if sex is a collaborative experience, if it's something that you create with your partner, if it's something that is exciting and, um, and fun, you know, like this probably won't show up in the same way. But if it's something where it's, it's something that one partner is giving to another out of obligation, you know, Mm, and when it's transactional. Yeah. And if there's not a whole lot of education around like what, what would make sex enjoyable to the point of this person like that's like that's like for me why I was so confused by this because I was just like why would I do that to myself like why would I withhold something that I like to get what I want from my partner right there's um there's this uh, really important bit of data out there called the wheel of consent and they talk about how the person who is doing the action might also be receiving from it, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast or this was between the two of us. I don't even remember anymore uh, because we have such awesome dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't where, think we mentioned it in the podcast. Well, I don't know. We'll <laughs> see. Um, <laughs> where I enjoy giving massage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, giving people massage is something that sometimes, like, I, I feel like I want to do it. Mm-hmm. It is satisfying for me. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm offering a massage to somebody and and they accept it's not, they're not necessarily the receptive partner. Mm-hmm. I might be mm-hmm. because I'm providing that service. Mm-hmm. The Wheel of Consent does a really, really good job breaking that down and understand, like, and helping people understand that. So I highly recommend our listeners look it up, mm-hmm. watch the video. Mm-hmm. It is such a mind blowing way to look at things. Um, and this also makes me think of um, this, this man that I once met, met who was saying, that, you know, he wants his partners to come. And so I asked him, I was like, well, do you want them to come because it'll make them feel good? Mm-hmm. Or do you want them to come because it'll make you feel good? Yeah, I've and dated a many difference. a dude who was really invested in my orgasm because it made him feel really skilled. Yeah. And I was like, I'm really great, like, like glad, thank you for giving me an orgasm, but also, like, I cannot concentrate or, like, I cannot not concentrate if I know right. that that is what your goal is exactly and and I am one of those very fortunate highly orgasmic people I'm the kind of person that can like manipulate my body with my mind so I can make myself orgasm without touching myself Mm -hmm. which by the way really fun skill (laughs) when you're bored um I used to do that in church right like oh that's a that's a wonderful place to try that out (laughs) I think this is the wine now like making us funny um (laughs) But <laughs> I'm just like thinking about what that's like. Um, I mean, church is really boring. So I thought a lot about Orlando Bloom in church. Oh, Orlando Bloom. <laughs> I see it. I see. It. I, I get it. Um, <laughs> well, the thing is, is that um, I could feel the difference when a man is trying to make me come, mm-hmm. and when a man is trying to provide pleasure. Yeah. Right. And I say a man because I've never had that experience when I was with women. Mm -hmm. Women were just like, whatever, you know, like your body's going to do what it does and we're just going to roll with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of that is because they've accepted that some women don't Uh orgasm. So they're like, I just want you to have a good time. So it doesn't matter if there's a goal. You know, I had an ex once say to me, like, none of my my tricks are working you know, like none of my, oh. and, and and this is the ex who like post breakup, I was like, oh, you might be a narcissist. And it didn't occur to me at the time. I was like, that's weird. Like, it's okay if I don't come sometimes, you know, like, but like to be like, none of my tricks are working. It's just like, well, it's because I'm different. Like my body is different than the people that you've been. You can't have like a standard rotation of like five moves that you do <laughs> and expect them to work, you right. know, every single time. I know. I, I like to recommend the song um, Lick It by Goddess and She. Mm-hmm. But they do kind of give you a formula and orgasm is not formulaic. Mm-hmm. Not even for, like, not even for people with penises, mm-hmm. by the way, mm-hmm. right? Like, not all, not all people with penises will come off, like, will come from enough friction, mm-hmm. right? Like, that may not work. And when we go back to the idea of, like, I want spontaneous sex, right? Like, where's the eroticism, you know, like, building up over there? Yeah. You know, when you're about to go on a date, you're getting dressed, you're doing your hair, you're doing your makeup, you're, like, you know that a date is about to happen. You're already getting excited. That's part of the eroticism. And when you're together, 
all the time. You don't have that buildup. So you're not going to have what you call spontaneous sex, mm-hmm. right? Like that's just not going to happen. Um, and if it does, ask yourself, is it qualitatively as good as the sex that does have erotic buildup for mm-hmm. you? And are you satisfied with it? Because you might be, and that's cool. Um, but that's really rare mm-hmm. and not an expectation that people should have because it's, it's killing relationships and it's killing the sexual vibe. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when I, when I think about like withholding sex, I think about, yeah, I, th- I think about an intention, mm-hmm. an intention to, to do that. And I remember, I don't remember if it was a movie or, or a TV show or something where I hear this grandmother talking to a woman who's about to get married mm-hmm. and she tells her, you know, we're the ones that are really in charge because we can always take this away from them. Mm-hmm. And I was always bothered by that line. I think I must have been a teenager when that movie came out. I can't even tell you which movie it was because I completely disregarded it as soon as I heard that yeah. line. I mean, it just assumes, though, that, like, women don't want sex. Yes. And that also reminds me of high school when there's this really fucked up concept in in ultra orthodoxy where it's called like the translation of it is called like the women's voice Mm -hmm. where men cannot listen to women's voices because it will make them think of sex Mm -hmm. and especially not when it comes to prayer. And so this is why they separate men and women and also why women are highly encouraged to pray silently. Um, and also not to sing out loud. And then when women sing out loud, they can only do it in the presence of other women. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed, like a man is not allowed to be present there. And if a man is, then they can't sing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really like men are determining whether women are speaking their voices out loud. And when I learned this concept, I was obviously really upset by it. And I was like, and I said to my teacher, I must have been 17. I was a senior. And, you know, I said, but women get turned on by men's voices. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, they don't. I was like, but I do. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, you don't. I was like, we get turned on. I was like, really? I was like, I was already being slut-shamed, so I might as well talk about my sexuality, right? Like, if it helps somebody. And I was like, we do get turned on. And she goes, no, you don't. And I was like, are you telling me that I don't get turned on? Your own, like, right? And, and, like, the end of this argument was me getting in trouble and getting thrown out of class. But that moment never left to me because I'll never forget when a teacher was so insistent that what was happening in my body was not real, that I wasn't getting turned on, that a man's voice cannot influence me that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm dating somebody who has a really hot voice and I hope to get him on this podcast. And I tell him that all the time. Like, But that, I mean, that just makes me think like, and we, we have to go on break in like three minutes, but the impact of that and just like, you know, what, what number of women or, you know, uh, women like just being disassociated from their bodies because they're told that what is going on in their bodies is not real. And then like, that's like, if you are even part of any kind of cultural lexicon at all, if you're trans, if you're non-binary, like you're basically erased from mainstream culture, like we're getting a little bit better, but not, I mean, I, I, had a friend whose partner came out as trans and one of the things that they wanted to talk about was like how are we going to have sex now how is sex going to change how is you know their relationship to their body going to change like what words are going to be okay um and it was really it made me really kind of understand that like 
heterosexual couples, of course, you know, are responding to a whole bunch of myths in yes. in society. But, you know, it's a, it's a whole other issue when, like, there aren't any myths at all or any sort of standards or things to compare yourself to or any kind of narratives that are sort of, like, widely accepted at all, which is why, like, we so frequently talk about representation on this show. Um, but just, like, you know, like, what does that do for you in your body to either have to compare yourself constantly to myths that don't fit or to not have anything to look at at all? You know, this makes me think of resilience, because when you don't have myths to compare yourself to, you can create your own narrative, mm -hmm. which is something that I love about queer spaces mm -hmm. and polyamorous and relationship anarchist spaces is that we have the flexibility to create our own narrative, but we also have to understand that that's a sign of our resilience to the trauma of living in this culture yeah. that is so heterosexist. And I really do appreciate that you brought that up and, and how interesting that it showed up in this episode of Withholding mm -hmm. Sex. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take a break. Yes. And uh, we'll be back in a minute. Hey, friends. Janice here. You're listening to Season 2 of Sexistential You, the School of Sexistentialism. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you like what you're hearing, consider finding us on Patreon. We have a bunch of exciting tiers for patrons, including polls and surveys for future content, exclusive access to minisodes, shoutouts on the show, and even private consultations with me and Rachel. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at sexistential.u. Now, back to the show. everyone we're back uh with our second part of episode three season two we're talking about withholding sex and we have a couple of more resources for you and the first one is probably familiar to a lot of you if you've been involved in sexuality um in the field of sexuality and sex ed um because it's one of the most famous sex therapists oh i don't actually know if she calls herself a sex therapist no um, i don't think that she does but it's esther perel and so she's got a couple of sources that you can check out specifically around this topic and sort of the way it plays out in relationships and how it can be really complicated so the first is her podcast uh, so we're talking about esther perel uh, her podcast is called Where Should We Begin? And I think there are two seasons available on iTunes. I've listened to almost every single episode. And withholding sex is a topic that comes up a lot in many of them. Um, so most of Esther Perel's work is around infidelity. So she's got two books on that subject. One is Mating in Captivity and the other is called The State of Affairs. So sort of just like full disclosure, I haven't read Mating in Captivity in years. I think I read it maybe like three or four years ago. Right. Uh, I did read The State of Affairs sometime this year, probably in January, um, after I got cheated on. <laughs> but yeah, so so one of the ways, so this is sort of why I came into this topic with like so many complicated feelings because... One of the things that she does when she works with people who are, are kind of trying to patch together their relationship after one or more partners is unfaithful um, is, you know, really sort of taking a, a really long, hard look at the relationship and trying to understand how can 
how can both partners or all partners be accountable in some way? So, you know, and, and obviously like the situations are complicated. It could be, you know, lack of desire after something as awful as a miscarriage or, you know, and then, and then the other partner like has an affair because as you were talking about like skin hunger and need for touch and need for intimacy is a really real need or like, um, like lack of desire after any, any number of things, after a death in the family, after, you know, like work gets really stressful and like money is really tight, you know, or there's when so- your body changes because mm-hmm. it inevitably does and you're not feeling particularly yourself. Yeah. Just and basic life events. Yeah. So, so in those circumstances withholding sex, I think is complicated because it's not a conscious and manipulative act, but it is right. something that is happening and functioning within the relationship. Um, and you know, sometimes the response to that, I mean, it can go one of two ways. It can be like that partner deciding to stay in the relationship and just, you know, feel like their needs aren't being met and feeling really lonely, you know, or sometimes people step out of their relationship. And that's why, you know, she's really sort of critical about the idea of monogamy and how can we show up in monogamous ways in a conscious way? How can it be a constant collaboration with your partner instead of sort of this given, you know, or this sort of like uncritical state of being. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to take into account when we talk about withholding sex. You know, what are the reasons why? Why is it that within this relationship, it is so hard to clearly and sort of directly express what you're feeling. And and instead you have to sort of like have these actions of of denying someone something, but maybe it's something that's not even talked about, right? what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, it makes me think, like, I think we need to be a little bit more intentional about our relationship decisions, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to monogamy. Because when the concept of monogamy and marriage began, mm-hmm. people got married, you know, right when they were able to procreate and, and, like, make children, right? So we would say, like, 14, 15 years old. They also, like, died at 40. Mm -hmm. So what are we talking about here as far as, you know, a life, like a life together? We're talking from 14 to to 40, you know, how many years is that? I can't think, 26 years, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe, math. Yeah, it's math right now, and we've been drinking. (laughs) So there's that. And then, but today, people are getting married maybe at 30, you know, or maybe a little bit before 30, but we're going to use 30 because it's an even number and a little bit easier for me to calculate. (laughs) But they're dying at 85, at 90, right? So if we're going from 30 to 80, right, like, let's just make this simple. That's 50 years. Or if that's the expectation of that being one marriage that lasts 50 years. Right. And But that's the thing. It is the expectation. Otherwise, we call that a failure, right? Divorce is considered a fail because of the, the... the litmus test for success in a monogamous situation is one person dies, mm-hmm. right? We've mm-hmm. talked about this. It's not the quality of the relationship. It is if one person dies, like at least somebody outlives it, mm-hmm. then you have succeeded. Yeah. Right? And so we're talking about 50 years together, and that is double the amount of the expectation that it was when marriage, especially first became a concept and you know the idea that marriage is not just you know an economic agreement between people to like raise children but now it's you know where you find all of your self-actualization and where you have all of your intimate needs met and it's your best friend and it's your lover and it's the best sex of your life and it's the parent of your child (laughs) 
Right, which is ridiculous because that doesn't even make sense, mm -hmm. right? Human beings have a lot of needs and a lot of interests, and you can't have one person fill all of them. And so what we end up doing is compromising. Mm -hmm. And often in heterosexual relationships, it's the woman who does a lot of compromising. But in queer relationships, which is interesting that I have seen in my practice, mm -hmm. we see the compromise happening with the partner that has the least amount of financial power, mm -hmm. right? Which in standard gender roles, that used to be the woman, mm -hmm. right? And so the person who has the least amount of financial power is the one that makes all the compromises. Mm -hmm. This is particularly disturbing to me. Yeah. Because it really shows us how capitalism is determining our relationship success mm -hmm. and how we function in relationships. That's how institutionalized our relationships are. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about monogamy following scripts and holding on to scripts that were established at a time where people lived just long enough to see their kids start making children, mm -hmm. then what the fuck? Right? Like we're not we're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think Esther Perel, like it's I don't think that she is that much non-monogamy. I don't think that's her narrative. I think she's just really asking people to make intentional decisions about their Yeah, I mean, she's very critical of like, uh, and, like just like general acceptance of monogamy. It has to work for people. And she talks about the idea of erotic intelligence and right. what does it mean to have erotic intelligence. And one of her quotes that I think kind of puts her on this borderline of like monogamy, non-monogamy is that she says that you know, most people will have two or three great love affairs in their lives. And sometimes people will do that with one person. And that's the idea of erotic intelligence. That's the idea of understanding yourself as a person, understanding how you're changing over time, understanding your partner as a person and how they're changing over time and making the conscious decision to grow together and to keep choosing each other and to keep understanding and taking like really intentional looks at the relationship and what is serving you, what needs to be changed. How can, how can it change so that both people are on this path of sex of self-actualization together and how this relationship, I mean, I guess like it's like, it's the idea of like relationship actualization, which is like a constant change, a constant development. Um, which is, it's, it's interesting when you think about it, because if you have two or three great love affairs, like that's, it's sort of like a non-monogamous idea. And like, to me, like conscious monogamy is, is, is that idea of erotic intelligence is that idea of like embracing change and realizing that what I need today is not going to be what I need in two years or three years or 10 years. Yeah. And you know, there's this idea that all the cells in your body like kind of regenerate over the course of seven years mm -hmm. so that the skin that you had seven years ago is not the same skin that you have now. Mm -hmm. And there's the next concept called the seven year itch, mm -hmm. which is usually where relationships start going through a major sort of either upheaval mm -hmm. or destruction mm -hmm. or something. And it's interesting that it's seven years. And, and I love that because I think that it takes sometimes, right, like seven years is a good amount of time where you really are a different person if you're constantly learning and growing. And so you cannot expect the partner that you married at 30 to be the same partner at 50, okay. to be the same partner at 80. Mm -hmm. And you can't expect the sexual desires and needs mm -hmm. to be the same from 30 to 50 to 80. Mm -hmm. 
or desires or fantasies and so on and so forth because we are changing and if every seven years our our cells are are regenerating and becoming something else then think about the potential for exploration and all of that well I think it's also just sort of the idea of like like the the values of like do you value what your expectations are or do you value curiosity and I think a lot of people when they approach long-term relationships and this goes for people of all genders all relationship styles you know I think a lot of people because this is something that showed up for me even when I was like non-monogamous was you know I'm gonna find someone and then I'm gonna be done you know Mm -hmm. it's like that that scene like Carrie Fisher in When Harry Met Sally where she's like oh god I never want to go out there again and like I'm done like I'm done with dating I'm done and now the thing that I have chosen is going to be the same for the rest of my life and the relief of that. And, and that's definitely something that I brought to my last relationship where I was like, I finally met someone who I'm happy with and now I get to be stable (laughs) forever. And obviously that wasn't the case, you know, and it really sort of really funny because I find myself the most stable at this stage where I have two partners and I'm divorcing the person that I married, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's just so fascinating because I never felt stable yeah. in, in monogamy. But that's the thing. Like, that's sort of, like, the lie of this idea of, you know, for monogamy to be successful, it has to go until one of the part one of the partners dies. Where it's just, like, no, like, the, well, this is another, like, Adrienne Marie Brown thing, and she quotes Octavia Butler where she's, like, the only constant is change. Like, that's the only stable <laughs> thing in the world is that things are going to change. You know, and, and I think the sort of myth of monogamy and the myth of these long-term relationships is that it's an end goal and it's not, it's a process. Yeah. And I, and I, like, we see this all the time also, right? The fairy tale ends at the wedding, mm-hmm. right? The fairy tale ends at the wedding tells you something. It tells you that porn ends with jizz in the face, right? They're both completely unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause right? someone's got to get up and get a towel, you know? Yeah, and also, like, I don't want to risk my eye getting infected, so can you not? <laughs> Why, like, just anywhere else. <laughs> just not my face. Yeah. Like, what's with that? I'm sure there are some people who love getting just on the face, and some of that might be the myth that it helps your skin. It doesn't. But I don't know. I've never heard that myth. <laughs> yeah, that's been there. Thank you, Cosmo Magazine. It's definitely been in there. Thank you, Sex in the City, for bringing that shit forward. I grew up on that. Um, but the reality is, it does not. It does not help your skin. Does it, it reduce the rates of cancer? Because that's the one I heard. If you drink enough jizz, yeah, you unless they cancer. have HPV, <laughs> right? Which you know, chances are they do. Um, but yeah, I think we're getting off topic. Um. So another another sex educator or, or sexuality presence is Dan Savage, who I actually, he's a little bit before my time. I, I didn't do too much listening. I also just don't listen to men. Um, I mean, he but, was gay. Does that help? No. Yeah, he was like super fat phobic and like the he whole like Lindy West thing, you know, which um, was that? He's also what's transphobic. That, yeah. What's the TV show? Shrill. Shrill, right. I love um, Lindy West. But he came up with the idea of monogamish, and I think that was also, like, sort of directly, maybe not totally about withholding sex, but just about, like, differences in libido and, you know, differences in how sexual needs are are met or how partners are able to meet each other's sexual needs and the idea of, 
you know, you deserve to have the sex life that you want to have. And sometimes that means that the structure of your relationship needs to change. And I think in, in talking about the idea of being monogamish, one of the questions that came up has to do with sex work and the idea of like, is it cheating to see a sex worker if you're, if your partner can't meet your needs? And this is actually a conversation that, um, I think Esther Perel talks about too, sort of, and for me, like the, the complication is like from the perspective of a sex worker, like I'm not involved in the relationship. I, you know, I don't ask the customers that come into the club if they have girlfriends, if they have wives. I don't think they generally want to talk about it. If they bring it up, that's fine. But like, I don't want to know. I don't want to play therapist in general. Like, you know, I'm there to be entertaining, to be a fantasy, this, that, and the other thing. Um, but it, I think it is some, sometimes a question. It was actually something that I saw on Twitter today where I can't remember who it was something that someone retweeted. Um, but it was like to speaking to heterosexual women. And it was like, look, sometimes your man is going to want to finger up the butt because that's where the male G spot is. And if you don't want to do that, sometimes he's going to go to a sex worker who will. And like, it's fine if he does that. Like, obviously, like, it's probably better if it's an honest conversation. Right. But if the attitude of the female partner in that relationship is that it's gay to do that, you know, then you've got all of these issues of shame coming up. Yep. Um, and, like, sometimes you just want to finger up the butt. And, like, that doesn't make you gay, you know? You know, I, my favorite thing about, like, I, I I don't remember the name of the author because I'm terrible with names. But this article really said something pertinent to this point, which is the sex worker saves marriages. Mm -hmm. She's not going to try to marry your man. She's right. not going to try to, like, like, it's really an exchange of, like, a transaction, right? Mm -hmm. It's an exchange of some sort where he's getting what he needs and he's not going to leave you. Mm -hmm. He's not going to, like, ruin your, your financial, like, mm -hmm. status unless, you know, that's unless he's not budgeting well. Like, yeah, he should put that line, you know? Yeah. Right? Like, the sex worker could really save marriages. And the idea of, you know, I, I don't know, like, it, cheating is... I have such a hard time with the idea of cheating because I never felt that as a betrayal. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been cheated on, and I was just like, oh, okay, so what now? Like, it just never occurred to me to feel bad about it well I think it's the it's the deceit part of it that like for the me lying. like like with my ex I was like I was non-monogamous before I met you this is a conversation that I clearly demonstrated I was comfortable having so there was no reason other than the fact that you disrespect me yeah for you that to do I that right that I get that happened to me I was literally planning my wedding and my partner had this entire exchange with this other woman's like sexting with her and whatever. And I was like, seriously, like we were, we were going to polyamory events. Like, why would you do this behind my back? Well, that's like just a power dynamic thing. I think, you right. know, like an ego thing, like I'm getting away with something or whatever. Like, right. That's exactly what it was. And the thing is, is that he didn't want to have the conversation because he wanted it to be something that he got away with. <sighs> You know, and that should have clued me into not get married. <laughs> but water under the bridge. But it didn't expensive water under the bridge. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't want it to be expensive. My parents insisted, so that's on me. <laughs> um, we did have really nice flowers, though, and I made a good amount of money selling that wedding gown. So, 
But I think, yeah. I think bringing point. it back to our topic, you know, withholding sex is not just sort of like withholding sex wholesale, but it can be withholding, you know, certain types of sex that you don't feel comfortable with, but then you're also just banning that from ever happening. And like, what does it yes. mean for your relationship to say like, I'm not comfortable with this. So you cannot have the fullest expression of your sexuality. Yeah. I actually, I had a client who showed up with me. He was ABDL, which is adult baby diaper loving. And his partner was only able to tolerate so much of that. Like Mm -hmm. she let him have diapers. She let him, you know, like urinate in diapers, you know, in certain space, but she, but he wanted a more enthusiastic no no he just wanted a more enthusiastic relationship with it and she just couldn't do it and honestly like I think about it like I'm raising a child and and I did not love infancy like I love that she's five because she's you know not shitting herself that's great (laughs) so um (laughs) sorry one day but, one day she's gonna hear this and just be like thanks mom she knows how I feel <laughs> but either way you know like and I understand the idea of like wanting an enthusiastic partner so even if a partner is doing it to appease you it doesn't have that same experience because yeah. the enthusiasm has to be there yeah. for it to be fun and so even if you try but you don't want it wouldn't it be easier for you to just let them have somebody else do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then why, why does that need being enthusiastically met have to mean that there's something wrong with the relationship? It just means that who you authentically are, like both people should show up authentically as who they are. Right. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't try to force yourself to do that. Right. You know, because that also does you a disservice. It does your partner a disservice. Yeah. Like forcing things isn't going to, make anything better right Mm -hmm. so that's that's where we go back to the idea of like there's withholding sex as an intentional manipulative technique Mm -hmm. and then there's withholding sex because your body is not calling for it because Mm -hmm. something is is present in the relationship that is making you not want it Mm -hmm. um this actually i i want to talk a little bit about this interesting question that we got on instagram Mm -hmm. she Give us a nice long summary of her life, but we're gonna we're gonna give you a like TLDR here, mm-hmm. which stands for too long didn't read. In case you don't know, um, it's I do everything to make myself desirable, but my partners don't have desire to have sex with me. Mm-hmm. And so she wasn't talking about like having several partners that don't want to have sex with her. She's talking about she has had two separate monogamous relationships, and at some point her partners didn't want to have sex with her. Mm -hmm. And I mean, my first question to her was, why do you think this is on you to solve? Yeah. Why is it? Because it sounds like it was, the assumption was that there was some flaw, like she had some inherent flaw that needed to be fixed in order to make these people want her. Right. And, and I think that what really resonated for me was the internalization of this Mm -hmm. because she was, she almost felt defensive over the fact that her partners did not have a libidinous desire for her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was saying, like, I work out every day. I dress well. Other men desire me. I'm the I, cool girl. I am all of these things, right? And I'm willing to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm GGG, which is Good Giving Game, another Dan Savage creation. And 
I want all of these things and I, I'm willing to go wherever and however and, and try anything out. Why, why don't they want this? And I'm not going to get into the details of how we resolve this for her as much as really sitting with the experience that she was going through, mm-hmm. right? That she shifted and contorted herself mm-hmm. To be a desirable partner. And that is the other side of withholding sex. This is where it becomes manipulative. Now, I'm not saying that her partners are manipulative. I don't know if they were doing it intentionally. That's hard to know. Um, We didn't get those details. Maybe yet is a word to add to that. It just also makes me think, though, is like, I hear, you know, I want to have sex with my partners. But one of the things that I think happens when we because I've had experience with this too, where I've tried to be what my partners wanted. And that was the time in my life when I couldn't have an orgasm, honestly, you know, like I tried so hard to be what I thought everybody wanted or needed. And that didn't leave any room left over for my own real desire, my own authentic expression of sexuality. I was wondering a lot through our dialogue with her if it was the trying that made her partner's desire kind of diminish. The idea that she was becoming less herself Mm -hmm. in the entire experience because she was doing what she thought her partners wanted. Mm -hmm. And And like potentially it had nothing to do at all with her. You know, like, was there ever the question of, you know, like, just just non-judgmentally bringing it up and being like, hey, we're having sex a lot less and I would like to be having more sex. And I where's your head at with that? Right. And also, like, considering the circumstances, are they anxious about something? Is there a health issue involved? Um, Is it just like a minor circumstance that they go through some life changing event? You know, there are so many things that disrupt our libido and we need to and especially if you're aiming for a long-term monogamous relationship you got to be curious curiosity is the thing that's going to save your relationship Mm -hmm. without blame without judgment just really being present for your partner that's how you're supportive that's how you're there for them um and i translate that in in all of my relationships including my friendships right so I I mean, I love my friends. I prioritize my friends over everything. And that's what I do. When I see that they're not behaving in ways that I'm used to, I'm wondering what's going on with them. I'm asking them, are you okay? Do you need support? Do you want to talk about it? And when you're present for people, you get really surprised by what's going on. And in a monogamous relationship, it's really easy to take it personally. Mm -hmm. And I think that withholding sex when it's not manipulative really does that to a person, Mm -hmm. right? It makes them take it personally. Whereas when it is manipulative, you could just say like, this partner is being really cruel, Mm -hmm. right? And once you realize it, you can identify it. But when it's happening unintentionally, it could very easily be like, Am I not, you know, am I not thin well, it, enough? It am like, I not? Yeah, it like dings those little insecurities. Well, I mean, it even, it makes me think of like, um, 
a concept that I learned in my cognitive behavioral therapy class my last semester where it was just like your core belief, if your core belief is I'm broken or I'm unlovable, you know, and you're not having these honest conversations about desire. And if your way of understanding your lovability is always contingent on some type of outside validation, you know, I'm wondering if that was what was sort of urging her on to have the perfect body and like, you know, be super fun all the time and be really quote unquote hot, you know, whatever all of those things were that she felt she needed to do, you know? And it also makes me think of when there's a lack of sex in a relationship and then a partner steps out, you know, is it because those core beliefs of I'm unlovable are being activated and then they go need proof from some other person if they're not getting it from their monogamous partner, then the proof has to come from someone else. And that's sort of like behind the, the infidelity then, because it, it's not something that can come up, uh, that kind of vulnerability can't come up in the relationship. So the, the acting out is then, you know, sex as validation or intimacy as validation, however it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's, yes, that's everything. And, you know, I, I, I actually like this conversation a lot more than I thought that I would because withholding sex always felt like something so ridiculous to me. I was like, why would you do that to yourself? You know, I was, I was that person who was like, as soon as I'm ready to fuck, I'm going to be fucking a lot. Like I, I just like understood this about myself and I was like, right. You know, like I knew that that's what I wanted for me. And so I never understood the concept of withholding sex as like, I'm going to do this as, as a way to like teach my partner. Now we're both unhappy. (laughs) Yeah. Like I just never understood that. Um, and you know, through this dialogue and through the work that I've done over the last decade, I've really started to understand the mechanism. And so there's something called, it's really funny. There's a, there's a kind of like sort of therapeutic technique called FAP. Right, which is funny to me because you know, fapping masturbation, <laughs> but it's called like the functional analysis protocol. Mm-hmm. And the functional analysis asks you, What's the function of this behavior? Mm-hmm. And when I see it, you know, when I know that a person is withholding sex because they know that it's going to make their partner insecure, mm-hmm. I want to know why they're doing that. Why do you want your partner to be Why insecure? do you want an insecure partner? Mm-hmm. What does that, what validation does that give you? Right? How does that play for you? What's the power in that? Because when your partner is insecure, there is a lot of power in that. Yeah. And I, it took me a long time to come around to that idea. Mm-hmm. And so this conversation really, really sealed that in for me. So yeah. thank you. all right so that's a wrap for us um we'll be back in two weeks with episode four that will be about sexual harassment get ready (laughs) well till next time all right thanks for tuning in to another episode of sex essential you the school of sex essentialism would you like to contribute to a future episode have a burning sexuality question that you just need answered, or want to have a voice message featured on the show, reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at sexessential.u or email us at sexessential.u at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you.